Hello, welcome to my podcast entitled Theodidacti. My name is Benjamin, and the title of my podcast is directly translated to Taught by God, but I'll explain this title a little bit later. This year, I read up on some of the theological works of Martin Luther, who inspired a lot of my thinking while studying through the Book of Romans. These thoughts became conversations and led me to recording and organizing them into a podcast. My primary topic of discussion is simple, an analysis of the way in which the Christian believer lives out their life. When relating my question to scripture, um, it's rooted in a struggle detailed by Paul in the book of Romans. Uh, My question is, how do we, as those justified by faith, by the grace of Christ, continue to love the law, hate the flesh, love God, subdue the body, and model ourselves after Christ? To answer this, I bring in five people that I've had great conversations with over this, or who I believe have excellent experience in this category of thinking about the Christian life. Uh, These people are Ryan St. Pierre, Harrison Jennings, Dr. Lori Wilson, Dr. Adam Johnson, and Dr. Janelle Eijen. Before jumping into this thought project, I'd like to lay a little bit of groundwork taken from key parts of Romans. Paul's primary argument is, the righteous shall live by faith. The part of this statement I want to ask is, How do we know that we will live if we are righteous by faith? What actions does it take to live in this way? As James 1 denotes, we receive the word by action. And Paul starts to flesh this out by saying, through Christ, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law in Romans 3.28. And now knowing we are justified apart from the law, Paul uses the term free in Romans 6.18. He says, we have been set free from sin under the law and have become slaves of righteousness. So here, Paul is recognizing our freedom, but he's also acknowledging our bodily nature. In Romans 7.15, he confesses, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He concludes his investigation of the body-soul struggle by returning to Christ's first commandment to us, love. He says in Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So with these concepts in mind, Christ's justification and our bodily struggle, I want to look at how love fulfills the law. Despite our flesh giving us the tendency to feel constrained by the laws of the world, how are we able to fulfill the law by modeling the love of Christ? In my conversation with Dr. Wilson, she brought an excellent thought to the table concerning our identity in Christ. At the same time that you're running around in this huge field of freedom, you're also, as a Christian, walking a knife edge in some ways to think like, in everything in my life, even in the small ways, as am I glorifying God and loving Him with my works and my actions? And is my faith demonstrated in that way? Um, and of course, it, you could end up, you don't want to end up with like this morbid scrupulosity where you're um, like constantly analyzing every single action, like, did I do this right? Um, that, that I think is, is more focused on the self and like its state and conditions and my achievements rather than on being directed with a love for God, which is like the positive aspect of the law, which isn't just uh, doing the, these things, but rather like loving the Lord and wanting to honor and glorify him. Um, so that's supposed to be the focus more than like all the externals. But then if you're, if you're loving God, then that love is going to show in all of your actions and everything up to like the eating and drinking. And then whatever you do, um, your life will be characterized by, by that desire to please him.
Yeah, I, I love what Dr. Wilson brings up when she says that as Christians who live in freedom, we walk this knife edge. We have this tendency to relapse into a morbid scrupulosity of our righteousness when we should really posture ourselves to have an internally motivated posture to please him without this anxiety of our outward appearance to the world. To understand what these struggles look like practically in the lives of believers, I asked my friends how they began to understand how the righteous shall live by faith in their own lives. In this next section, we'll hear from Ryan St. Pierre, Dr. Wilson, Dr. Igen, and Harrison Jennings talk about their journeys of walking this knife edge in the freedom of being Christian. I relate to Peter and the overzealousness or the Thunder Brothers. Um, and when I got saved, I was pumped. I remember I was on the top of a mountain, literally, when I got saved. And I just remember thinking the gospel is like the cure to cancer. And the whole entire world was infected with sin. And the gospel is the solution. The gospel is the cure. And I still believe that today. Let me be clear about that. But with that, I was like, if people hear the gospel, because I never heard the gospel before then. People hear the gospel, then they will all get stay, saved and have victory over sin. Let's go! So I went down that mountain, and I was so ready to tell each and every person. And I felt when they heard it, they would get saved on the spot, mm -hmm. just like me. And I had full faith that that was going to happen. And I get home, and I tell like my seven closest friends, and I was just like, here we go, revival. This school's gonna, my public school is going to be a Christian school. Like, I was so pumped up telling them they need to come to my church and stuff. And then they were just not receiving it. In fact, they were making fun of me. I remember one guy was like, you're so selfish, Ryan. Another guy was like, this is going to last for a month. Another guy was like, you can't go to church for a week and then act like you have the answers to life. Another one was like, you're just doing this for yourself so people think you're a nice person. You'll be back soon. Another guy, my closest friend I was inviting him, just continued digging why, why, why. Finally, I told him, dude, I found out if I would have died that I would have gone to hell because I would have been judged for my sin. And you know what, man? I look at you and I see you. You were at the same place that I was a day ago. And you need to get saved. And he did not receive this. He told the whole school, or all our friends at least, that if he didn't go to my church, that he was going to hell. He told people that I said that, so I received some pretty serious persecution. Um, and I kind of, you know, it's hard, but I embraced it. And I was like, you know what? This is what I got to do. Keep on going. But I think just as I had a small understanding of the scriptures, when I heard something, I was ready to die on that hill. Like, you know, because I didn't have many hills. <laughs> there wasn't a mountain range, you know. It was yeah. kind of just like a, a one-hill story. So, yeah. You know, when I would hear about a commandment, I remember my pastor was preaching through the book of John. Say I hear a commandment, and it's just like, boom. And then if I see someone else breaking that, like, I would get upset. I would be like, that is wrong. And I remember even my early years of Biola, um, you know, <laughs> almost trying to do this evangelism or just finding truth and just, like, arguing people, like, whether cussing's a sin or not, and going back and forth in the scriptures. And I would just get so riled up and so, like, just like, ah, why do they not understand what the word is saying? But I think just learning that you don't want to die on every hill, but when they, there is a hill that you die on, they'll know it meant the world to you. And I think I was overzealous. I just, uh, <laughs> I was very, very passionate. I said things that I would regret. I remember um, I, one of my friends asked me, hey, my, do you think my parents are going to hell? And I told him yes, because he told me beforehand that they were atheists. And, you know, I, if 
if I would have gone back, I, I de definitely want to tell him the truth. But I think I would have asked him, like, what do you think the Bible says? So I, I just think there's a much more gentle and more meek way of going about things. And that yeah. is really the way that Christ does. Mm -hmm. And at the right time, being very direct. But I think, uh, I was like, I'm not hiding anything. This is the truth and it's the cure. So I think out of that, it kind of led to some overzealousness. And I kind of beat myself up when I was sinning because of it, which I feel like to an extent you should, but the other extent, like, hey, like I was furthering my understanding of grace, not just grace to be saved, but grace in the daily Christian life. Probably around like 13, 12 or 13, when I think my faith really became my own faith and I realized more deeply like what it means to be saved from sin and being made alive in Christ. Um, so whether, whether I was a Christian before that or not, I'm not really sure. But I know like that I'm one now. Yes. <laughs> and, that, and I think that's part of the Christian journey is that the more that you grow in your faith, the more you grow in your love for Christ and your desire to to be closer to him and um and the way that one of the ways we are close to him is by living in the ways that he wants us to live and being uh, completely surrendered to him growing up i was i was given rules um that 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 were a little bit like a kind of an old testament law and told like look if you if you follow these rules um you'll be pure um and you'll be holy um, and the fact of the matter is that, that no amount of following those rules makes you pure and holy, although it does keep you from doing stupid things and impure things. Um, but, but on the other side of that, there was this, um, the, this kind of the reliance on rules, I think, undermined what was the, the, the thing that underlies the rules, which is this, this relationship of love with God and other people that blooms in basically following the rules, but doing so in, in a much more, in a much more holistic and in a much more, um, yeah, in a much more deeply rooted way. So I went from a background Church of Christ is basically, um, I think, I think every tradition is liturgical in some sense, but Church of Christ is very low church, very, um, a lot less liturgical than in the Catholic yeah. tradition. So uh, yeah. liturgy became a much more central part of my faith. And that I think was, I find liturgy beautiful and um, very helpful in, in living the faith. Um, I think I became much more, um, my faith became much more sacramental. So growing up in my tradition there was um, i mean we we focused we had baptism and we had communion um, but we really didn't even the word sacrament wasn't even a word that we used um, growing up so like um, going from that to the heavy emphasis in the catholic tradition on the sacraments not just um, the eucharist and baptism but um, all seven of the, the Catholic Church believes there are seven sacraments. Yeah. Um, and that became a much uh, more central part of my faith. An interesting theme I noticed between uh, these friends of mine that I was able to talk to um, was that they all seemed to have a, a conflict or a lack of understanding in their upbringing. And um, it seems that 
This helped them to come to have a greater clarity in their faith as they matured and grew in Christ, um, which actually takes us back to talking about this internal desire to love God. Much of my inspiration for this discussion is also guided by the theological works of Martin Luther in his writing called The Freedom of a Christian. Luther asks a fundamental question for a Christian, which is, why do we do what we do? He answers this, um, that it is an understanding that the distinction between the freedom and service of a Christian. We are free from our own work and submit ourselves to God. We hold on to the righteousness given to us passively by his grace and by submission to his will, and we freely find how we can know him out of a spontaneous love. Luther tells us we need to pray that the Lord may mold or shape us as theodidacti, that is, those who are taught by God, as I mentioned at the beginning. This is how righteousness is obtained. Luther actually helps us to understand this struggle that Paul talks about in Romans by identifying two types of righteousness. The first one is called active righteousness, which he defines as the unhealthy habits of earthly righteousness. Other ways we can think about this is our outward appearance or earthly reputation of goodness. The second type is called passive righteousness. He defines this as the righteousness instilled in us without our works, but by grace alone. This is also known as the justification that happens through salvation. The error that Luther points out in Christians is the tendency to relapse into active righteousness, which he considers a sin when God is not involved. Therefore, Luther combats this problem by distinguishing that passive righteousness produces active righteousness, or to use the terminology in Romans, faith produces works. In the conversations I had with my friends, they talked about how they went about identifying the problematic tendencies of active righteousness in their lives. They also talk about how they have worked to overcome them by understanding how the soul relates to the body. I'll now show you a few excerpts from my talks with Ryan St. Pierre, Dr. Johnson, and Dr. Ijen, where they talk about this. I think, you know, even thinking of Matthew 5, you know, let your light shine before others. Um, let the, you know, in your good works, they will glorify God, glorify the Father. So it's obviously, uh, hey, as a Christian, I want to glorify God, so I want to produce some good works. But then you think of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And it says we are God's workmanship. Um, and I just love that because I, I think it really does describe that passive, that passive yeah. righteousness what you're saying um like we are we were created by god not just not just our existence body and soul but also our salvation and also the works that we will walk in and i love it it's just like you know it's the power that exists in us and we simply walk out of that by faith yeah i mean like i think it's I, I've definitely been tempted sometimes to go the try-hard route, you know, mm. to make every external boundary from sin to make sure I don't do it, which I think, hey, you know, do that. Like, I think, you know, that's godly discipline. Yeah. But at the same time, if it's this active righteousness, which I think, you know, when we're positionally righteous, we'll live out righteous. So maybe you could say what that is and define terms how you want. But yeah, I mean, I think this legalistic, I need to do good works because I need to mature in my faith. 
well, that's not really how it works, mm. right? That's yeah. maturing our faith isn't me trying to do more works. And I, th- I think I've been, I've tried to do that because obviously I hate sin as a Christian yeah. and I don't want to do anymore. And I love obedience to God. So I want to obey him. But I think it's got to be from the heart, not just me um, gritting my teeth and trying to get past it. So in the, in the background of my thinking is the body-soul relation for this. And to say, hey, um, yeah, we have bodies and, and they do things. But they do things because they're animated by something. They're animated by something, by the soul, by something invisible. But the soul is where beliefs and motivations and all those things happen. And a lot of what Paul is saying is, look, um, we are living, active beings who act and do things, but we do things for a, for reasons that are matters of the soul. And so when he says that the righteous shall live by faith, it's not that he's making faith preeminent and then trying to figure out how to add works to it later, because the living is working. Uh, so the righteous shall work by faith. So faith, faith is the is the posture and direction of the soul animating Christian working, and they form a whole for him. It's not that one comes first and the other comes second, uh, in any sort of prioritization of goods or something. They're just an integrated whole. One animates and the other acts, um, but faith is the animating thing. So that's why he can say things like we're saved by you know we're saved by faith. But he can also say we're judged by works uh, because they form a composite whole and that's how, how they're meant to inter- interrelate. Um, and I, I don't think that you choose one or the other. I think he would say basically everyone operates by faith. Now the question is, but faith isn't a contentless thing. It has content. So faith is either going to be um, and this would be my way of kind of defining works. Uh, faith can all, uh, either be sort of an Odyssean sort of scheming and strategizing in order to bring about my own ends kind of thing that animates a certain kind of working. Or faith can be a posture of, of trusting and reliance upon God that animates a different sort of working. So the question for the Jews is, is the faith that you have, is the, is the way that your soul animates the kinds of workings and doings of your body, is that going to rely, is that going to be in a proper posture towards the maker of heaven and earth or not? Uh, and that's where I think he's trying to do a massive reinterpretation of the Old Testament or an inter- interpretation of the Old Testament in order to say, hey, this is the kind of posture all of our fathers and mothers had in the history of Israel when they did it well and were blessed accordingly. And uh, that, that's, that's what it is to live well. Yeah, I wonder if one of the distinctions to make is between um, it works, uh, sort, of, sort of identifying salvation with works as a kind of a, a sort of a prohibition, right? Like don't do this or do this, um, um, do this specific action um, and then that will reap salvation for you as opposed to thinking about the relationship between faith and works as, as you're saying, Dr. Johnson, of um, it, coming, uh, coming to love God um, means coming to love his kingdom and coming to love his way. Um, and and that, that love of God's kingdom will express itself, wh- whether it be in trying to make my home a little bit more like God's kingdom or um, in, 
viewing the people that I encounter as, as God would view them, um, rejoicing in the sort of the richness of the goodness of God's creation to me. And so, and so there's uh, like just endless works present themselves, which is to say my body, my body is integrated to my faith in, in, in constant ways. Um, as Dr. Johnson said, like, regardless of whether my faith is in God or something else, my, my actions are constantly um, attuned um, to the thing that I have faith in. And so, and so when James talks about how, you know, faith without works is dead, I think what he's trying to get at is this idea that if you say that you have sort of cognitive belief, which is to say, if you want to say like, no, my soul, my soul believes in God. Um, but but that you don't think that that will come out in your bodily actions, or you don't expect it to, or you don't think that your actions are are a good measure of of the way that you have faith. You're you're missing this integration between the two in a kind of crucial way. I think of works as when when spoken of negatively, uh, primarily as like machinations, strategies, and schemings in order to to get what one wants. It not it doesn't really have to do anything with the body at all. It's just a perverse faith. Mm-hmm. Works are perverse faith, mm-hmm. uh, and, and because all along we're going to be working no matter what, and 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 living and doing because we're bottling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I think works and faith are opposed to each other because works are perverse faith, not because they're bodily. Now that depends on. Faith. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It depends on the semantics and how how they're using the word in the given passage and things in scripture, but. Right. The perverse faith is a, is a faith that says, if I do the things you tell me to do with my body, you will give me the things I want in my unredeemed soul. It's a calculus. Yeah. Hmm. It reminds me of the Republic, actually, right? It's like, it's, it's, uh, this is Glaucon's challenge to Socrates, which is prove to me that I should yeah. be good rather than just looking good. Um, because mm-hmm. as far as I can see, all the rewards come from seeming to be good. So you need to show me that it's worthwhile to be good all the way down, as opposed to just being good, um, good in the in the eyes of others. And that sort of that that law of righteousness is being good in the eyes of others rather than being good all the way down. Hey, that was really good. Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> On the surface or all the way down? All the way down. No, that was really good. I liked that a lot. So in the last few clips, you heard them talk about active righteousness. Ryan talked about setting up every external boundary to combat sin, but he said it perfectly when he identified it as a problem of legalism. Doctors Johnson and Ijin defined works as perverse faith, which was especially helpful um, when she mentioned the conversation between Socrates and Glaucon in the Republic, where they struggle with the idea of seeming to be good versus being good all the way down. Luther tells us that the solution is in working alongside Christ through faith. So now in this next section, we're going to hear Harrison Jennings, Ryan, Dr. Johnson, and Dr. Wilson talk about the power of this passive righteousness. Aquinas just has just a robust, profound view of God as being itself, just the, um, which which can be kind of confusing to, to spell out what he means by that. But basically God is, is the, infinite ultimate foundation of all reality um and he is you know omnipotent all-knowing all-loving um but he is basically you know as saint paul 
quotes a Greek poet who says, in him we move and live and have our being. Aquinas really, that is, that is a great summary of his view of God, that we are just ultimately dependent, radically dependent upon God for every aspect of our existence. Um, so, you know, even just to sit here, just to exist and to sit here and to talk to you, all of that is, is God's work, God's active sustaining work. Um, and then, you know, that translates to faith as well, because um, we could not think, we could not know God, we especially, especially could not know the deep truths of the faith, such as the Trinity, without God revealing it, and without God giving us the grace to be able to believe it. So all of it is radically and absolutely from God and dependent upon God. Um, but also Aquinas's views of the distinction between primary and secondary causality has, um, has a, had a really practical effect on my life. Like, yes, I am radically dependent upon God for everything, but also God, I'm, I'm dependent upon God in such a way that I have um, existence and I have agency and I have, um, you know, I have to, as, as Aquinas would say, I have to um, cooperate with God's grace. I have to, I receive it and I have to um, act accordingly. And the ability to do that is, again, all from God and dependent upon God. Um, but that distinction between primary and secondary causality, it's a really, I think, um, deep way to understand our faith and our, our existence and our faith and our um, just our, our duties and the way we, we should live our life. Um, and so that, and also I think um, Aquinas's virtue theories, um, his emphasis on the virtues has been a really, had a big impact on my life, the need to just the knowledge of what virtue is and the need to grow in virtue as a important part of the Christian life. That is something that um, I have benefited greatly from, from reading Aquinas and others in that tradition. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is and they're trying to stump him. Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and might. He's quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's so it's so great because what Jesus did right there is in the first, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. He sums up the first four commandments of the great commandments. Mm. And then he says, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that's the next six, yeah. right? So I think sometimes we say love is on one side, obedience is on the others. Love is on one side, obeying God's commands is on the other side. And they're completely separate things. But I think one leads to another. I think Jesus would say that. So that's a verse that I definitely think of mm. and have been heard preached. Um, because, yeah, I mean, you just look at that. And out of our love for God, that's how that's how we're going to relate to others in a Christ-like way. Right? When we, want, when we love Christ, we're going to be like him, him to other people. When we understand grace, we're going to be gracious to other people. When we understand how patient God has been to us, 
We are going to be patient towards other people. So many of the commandments in the Bible specifically talking about others, right? I mean, six out of the ten of the Ten Commandments are about us, you know, these horizontal relationships we have. But we really got to pay close attention to the vertical commands, like the first four and other commands, because out of those flow how we relate to others. And it's first and foremost, us before God. I think of John 15, abide in me, you will be a much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, mm. right? I think I look at that. That's another reason that I would uh, sit with this answer. Christ introduces a whole hierarchy of goods that animates and organizes all the motivations for our workings. So I don't, in some ways that will have implications for the workings that we, for the acts that we do, but mostly I think is the way of, of or, organizing the hierarchy of goods around himself that then changes all the priorities and patterns and motivations for the doings. That's the most important thing. Oftentimes discipline ends up increasing the desire. So sometimes just doing things can be a way. For instance, if you really want to play the piano well and you practice every single day, you're gonna start enjoying it, right? Um, so, or if you eat healthy food, you'll probably start enjoying the healthy food, even if you didn't when you first started eating it. Um, so to a certain extent, seeking the Lord hopefully should increase our desire. Um, but I think there's a lot more to it than like habituation or like discipline because, and I think probably the Holy Spirit is that is involved there because it's not just like, oh, we have certain disciplines and we need to follow these disciplines, but rather it's that like the spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and that love for God is constantly drawing us into greater fellowship with him. So all those things cease to a certain extent, I think, to, to feel like disciplines and instead become like the, the, just the, the habits of a relationship that you have with someone. And I think the more that we feel like they're, they're disciplines or responsibilities and not a, a vibrancy of life living together with Christ, then the more we need to pray that God would, would change uh, our inward state so that we see it differently and it and it becomes because like you wouldn't if you were thinking about like a friend you wouldn't think oh I have these these uh, disciplines of of spending time with them or yeah. calling them at certain times like well maybe sometimes you would especially if True. you know but but usually you're like oh I, I really want to go spend time yeah. with this friend and if you had a friendship where you were always doing it like oh it's five o'clock on Friday, and this is the time we've scheduled to, like, yeah, got to call this friend. Oh, it's their birthday. Oh, got to get a present. Send it off. Yeah. Like, if, that, if that's the way you're living in, like, any relationship, yeah. that would become very problematic. So how much more should, like, the relationship that's the most rela important relationship of any that we have be driven by, like, that desire and that hunger? Like, David says, like, a, like you know, like a deer thirsting after the waters. It's this like this, this hunger to be near to God and to like be praising him and, and meeting with other people who also love him and um, to be communing with him in prayer and like taking your requests to him and um, going to him when you're hurting and like all of those things would just become 
uh, part of your your life and your love, not just uh, a set of disciplines. So you just heard them talk about what it looks like to work alongside Christ through God's passive righteousness. We first heard Harrison talk about our radical dependency on God, cooperating with his grace as defined by Thomas Aquinas. Ryan also talked about this by bringing up Christ's simplification of the Ten Commandments in his two commandments to us to love God and to love others as yourself. Dr. Johnson also said that Christ works with us by organizing an entire hierarchy of goods around himself so that our needs are always focused on him. And lastly, Dr. Wilson told us that discipline increases desire. This discipline is really attributed to the Holy Spirit's involvement in our lives so that we can have a vibrancy of life when we live together with Christ as deer thirsting for the water. Now that we have thoroughly discussed what it means to see our faith lived out in love, I wanted to touch on a few of the practical examples that my friends have talked about. Ryan gave a great biblically founded example from the idea of marriage. Yeah, but I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a husband who is like Christ. And, you know, I think we are called to serve our wives. You're called to do spontaneous things. Um, even dating my girlfriend, there's this one time she just called me. She said, hey, could I ask you a huge favor? And I was, I think I was playing some video games or something or just kind of about to take a nap. And she said, could you go to Home Depot, pick up two extension cords, uh, like 100 feet ones, and bring <laughs> it to the church for me, which is where she works. And I was like, yeah, totally. So I went to Home Depot, got it, got two extension cords, drove to the church. It was just kind of this act of service, right? But I think when we love someone, we are willing to serve them. I think it is the same way with Christ. When we have faith with him, and have spontaneous love for him, we are willing to serve Christ. And I think it's the same way in the church. Um, and just, you know, I think of the man, the command, whoever wishes to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. If we love Christ, if we have faith in Christ and who he is, when we want to follow him, then we will serve him, right? And these acts of services are really acts of love. Acts of service come out of genuine love, as shown in a human relationship and our relationship with God, as Ryan just said. And Dr. Johnson actually looks at this relationship at another angle, as he talks about improving his home as a picture of faith. So I, I remodel my home constantly. I put tons of work into it, making it more beautiful, and I, I love it. <clears throat> but I, I know that either, you know, vandals could sweep down from the north and overwhelm Western civilization <laughs> or, or, you know, politics could change and, you know, and, and anyone with a certain amount of property value could just lose their homes immediately. And like, all, there are all sorts of ways that I could lose my home, including uh, not, you know, not limited just to death. Uh, so I put constant work into making beautiful something which I know I can lose. Hmm. So what so you know, th there could be a way of thinking that, hey, um, by, by building the value and equity of this home and making it more beautiful, I'm establishing uh, safety and happiness, you know, building towards retirement or some sort of tangible thing like that. Uh, I think of that as the equivalent of being saved by works, mm -hmm. where, where I'm being animated by stability and safety of the, of the body and pleasure of the soul in the, in the space that I will be in. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> So what does it mean to do a bunch of carpentry and construction work and remodeling of my home um, by faith? I think it mostly has to do with a posture of worship where I'm primarily rejoicing in the order and beauty of the kingdom by trying to make something in its image. 
not in order to have an idol, but in order to, uh, to as an act of worship by turning the space around me into a fitting model of the kingdom <clears throat> through its harmony and proportion and parts. Um, and then also as an act of worship by extending that then to my neighbor and being able to invite my neighbor into a space saturated in order, harmony, beauty for the sake of hospitality, where my goal isn't to be praised, it's that people will feel at ease, welcome, safe, delighted there, and through that we can have rich relationships. The whole time me knowing, look, not talent, the talents aren't, you know, I've cultivated them, but I was given these talents, I was given these resources, and, and I, I was blessed with this property. Um, and I, I know I could lose it, but having a certain posture of faith allows me to both rejoice and then purpose all of it in a way that's ordered towards kingdom things. Hmm. Um, so that's my attempt to, to remodel by faith. Yeah, I, I would say along, alongside that, um, yeah, there's just, just going back to that image of the kingdom, or you can even think about the image of the garden, right? There's a, there's a way we were supposed to be, and there's a thing that makes us happy and good, um, and that, uh, and that uh, rightly relates us to God and to each other and to the earth. I've also been teaching Genesis recently. And, and so the, the like, works by faith is, to me, just entering back into that relationship that, that was meant to be. Um, and that's, that's what Dr. Johnson is doing when he's making his home beautiful and orderly. Um, he's, he's literally doing the same thing that I'm doing when I see a, a brother or sister in need and, and uh, help them out of my resources. Or when I, or when I kneel down and worship and, and pray to God, all of those, all of those are me re-entering uh, the the right way of being. Um, and and what faith does is it, um, <laughs> it faith is me saying, okay, I see that this is the right way of being, um, and and I submit myself to it, um, and I submit myself in love to God and to the things that He's created. So that about wraps it up for the talk that I'm going to do. Um, I definitely recommend listening to the full interviews, um, which has just a lot more wisdom from the people that I was able to talk to. But um, I'm greatly inspired by the thoughts and conversations that I've had with these friends. Um, so many thanks to Ryan Harrison, Dr. Wilson, Dr. Ijin, and Dr. Johnson. Uh, not only been able to get to know the different stories of these people, but I have broadened my perspective on what it looks like to live out the faith, which produces good works. Faith is not having this morbid scrupulosity about having righteousness, but it is remembering that it is the freedom to run around in a field to do what we believe is good um, and what is God's will for us to do, but by aligning with Christ and the love that he models for us. So as another reminder from Martin Luther, we need to pray that God shapes us as theodidacti. This is the true means that righteousness is obtained by faith. So I hope that by listening to this podcast, you may have been able to identify the tendencies for active righteousness in your own life and understand how passive righteousness gives us the desire to live out active righteousness rightly under God. If this is something you have already known and identified, I hope you've been able at least to gain a broader perspective as I did on what it has looked like for other people and the interesting thoughts that they had to say about it.